If you've ever tried to get your clients Stripe, Square, Shopify, Amazon, eBay, Etsy, or PayPal transactions into QuickBooks or Xero, you've probably pulled your hair out a few times trying to get the income and fees recorded correctly so the deposit amounts match the bank statement. Do you know you could be using Cinder to automatically do this for you? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Cinder, later in the episode. We want to be able to make money, but we don't want to take on any risk. And the problem is when we do that, we diminish the value of the output and we create confusion for the public. It damages our brand. What, what does the public see? They don't see compilation and audit financial statement. They don't see any of that stuff. What they see is an accounting firm that after 10 years is finally admitting that this stuff was false and they're only doing it now because, you know, somebody's coming after the client, Trump. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio. This is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Oh man, David, I'm so excited to talk to you this weekend. I have been waiting all week to talk about Mazars. Is it Mazars? Mazars and Trump. You know, it's funny. I (laughs) I haven't said it out loud, so I don't know. But I have read a lot. Well, it was everywhere, right? Like... Oh, they, yeah. they dropped him as a client. They fired a client. Right. And a very, very high profile one all over the news. So we should dig into that. I've been reading everything I can find on it. And not That's just good, the, every time I'm trying to read like the mainstream things and I'm like, I get, I, there's a lot of questions or there's a lot to, that seems like it's left out. Oh yeah. I mean, I want to know what kind of engagement was this? What were they doing for him. And a lot of the coverage just glosses over that and just goes straight to dumped by his accountants. Yeah. Dumped by his accountants. He must yeah. be guilty. Like, but, but like, like that's what, the, that might as well just be the headline. Yeah. Right. But like what, you know, that's that a little, is a little too simplistic. And given that this is a podcast about accounting, I felt we could actually provide some clarity and help people understand because I've been wondering this whole week, why, why after all these years, 10 years of preparing financial statements for the president, the then president and former president of the United States, like now you decide. So I've got some ideas, both from myself and from experts around the profession who have appeared in the news. What what do you got, David? Uh, A little bit of crypto updates. So uh, Warren Buffett, uh, some people sent me this article about Warren Buffett. I think it has the worst headline of the week and we can get into that. (laughs) Okay, Um, awesome. Warren Buffett is getting into crypto? Yes. And then a lot of app news on, um, you know, the whole spend cards. So Brex, Payhawk, um, Airbase, American Express. There's just a lot, lot, lot of news around all those companies, uh, app news stuff. But, and then the only other thing maybe I think that's kind of interesting is, and maybe this ties to the Trump stuff, but the, uh, there's a lot of numbers about enforcement from the ACC, SEC and PCAOB for 2021. And I don't know, the numbers are pretty weak. <laughs> we can get into that too. Absolutely. I have a, another timesheet story to play for you. Just one this week. It's a good one though. Universal ESG standards becoming, maybe becoming a thing. And then there was this big story. Oh gosh, I almost forgot about this. In Bloomberg, there's a story about how the accountant shortage and resignations are fueling financial reporting risks. So it's not just a practice management problem anymore. It's so bad 
that some companies may have material misstatements due to the shortage of accountants, creating risks for investors and markets. Like that's that's nuts, right? Because like in theory, I'm a public company. If I don't get my closed numbers by the end of the quarter, end of the year, released and audited properly, I can't really release them, which now is going to affect stock market stuff. Yeah, yeah, and you're in violation of regulations and. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure to get that stuff out, and it has to get out. It can't stop. And then I have a diversity story. There's a new survey on diversity and how uh, I'm not going to surprise anybody by saying that we haven't made any progress on it. <laughs> Yet again, year after year, the profession fails to advance. And I've got some thoughts about that. So where do we start, David? Can we do this listener voicemail? The timesheet one, the follow-up? Yeah, yeah I love that. Uh, knock that out. Knock that out. Okay. It's easy. And then... We can go down the path from there. This is a good one. So this is from a consultant to the accounting industry for many years who was asked to remain anonymous. Very high profile company. I'll just say it's one of the largest accounting <laughs> software companies in the world. And he's been there for 20 years. I can't be quoted or send this through official company channels, but I will say as a consultant to the industry for many years that falsehoods on timesheets in order to come within budgets is commonplace across the country. This is especially true in the audit area when team members have to allocate time to each folder section of the audit. They just guess and adjust based on budget and eat the rest in the name of promotion and self-preservation. In all firm sizes, not just the largest. I can't even believe that doubting this is a thing. I have been inside about 500 accounting firm offices in my time, mostly to implement time and billing systems. I have heard it all. 500 accounting firm time and billing systems implementations. This is all the confirmation I need. Somebody who has actually been there and seen it like that. It's a, it's a, it's a racket. And we, we believe it. And we do it. And we know it's wrong and false. And yet we keep doing it. Why? Why do we do this to ourselves? It made sense when we build by the hour to track our time by the hour. But now that we don't bill by the hour anymore, why do we still track the time and have these budgets? It makes no sense. It's insanity. Well, especially because, I mean, if you think about, you know, with CAS now and then technology, in theory, you're doing the job faster than you used to. So you don't want to bill by the hour. And that's what, that's why many firms, including me, switched. I started out billing by the hour, like everybody else. And when I discovered zero and I switched my practice to cloud-based accounting, Zero, Bill.com, Gusto, all that stuff, right? 10 years ago, my hours went down by 80%. Like the next month, if I'd continued to bill by the hour, I would have gone out of business. <laughs> so, so you got to switch. Yeah, but, but then the firms still track time and they still have to do the budgets and utilization because they don't know how else to measure efficiency and productivity. But there's lots of other really great ways to do that and tech can allow you to do that. So, like, we just have to – actually, here's my, my uh, pitch to the firms that haven't yet dropped the timesheets. If you aren't billing by the hour anymore, or for all the projects where you aren't billing by the hour, just try it. Try not tracking time for three months. Yeah, I was just, just going to say, like, just don't do it for a quarter. Like, what's, what's yeah. going to happen? And see what happens. If the firm doesn't burn down, then maybe it wasn't necessary. I believe that you still will know who are the productive people, <laughs> and you'll know which are the problem clients. You just got to talk about it. Instead of having people track their time in a system, you talk about it and then maybe find some alternate ways to track people's capacity, like 
number of clients they're working on. That was one that I used in my firm. I knew that my clients were similar enough where I could say typical bookkeeper could handle 30, 20 to 30. So I didn't need them to track time. I didn't look at the time on individual clients. I just looked at how many they were juggling as a whole. And if you want to get more fancy, you could have like a waiting system for different difficulty levels of engagements. And you just know, well, how many engagements can somebody really work on? How many clients can somebody really work on? Like This is something you can kind of gauge and figure out based on your practice, what's reasonable. Maybe for you, it might be five. It might be very few. Maybe for somebody, it might be 40. It just depends. Yeah. So... Yeah, continue I, the the voicemails. Keep them coming. Okay. Well, that that was the that was the one listener mail I got. There was also a LinkedIn post that I really liked from Logan George CPA that I wanted to play for you guys. This was about timesheets. And you didn't send it to me. I just saw it on on LinkedIn. Shouldn't you be at work? I've gotten asked this question quite a bit so far this busy season as I've been out and about. Gym, basketball game, traveling. I used to be so concerned about the number of hours I was working. Now that I don't track my time in a timesheet, I couldn't even tell you how many hours a week I'm working. The truth is though, it doesn't matter. The two things that do matter are being profitable to my firm and getting things done. For too long CPA firms have been tracking the wrong metric, hours. They've been tracking it and that's what they've been getting in return. This subconsciously pushes staff to keep putting in hours rather than finding ways to work smarter. In turn this creates a natural conflict of interest with the client since we bill for our time. In short, when we focus on the end product, it puts us on the same team as the client and gives the right incentive to the employee. So I like that point there about how when you track your time, it focuses your team on the wrong thing. It focuses them on working hours rather than finding solutions. Well, yeah, anything you measure is what people will perform to. Yeah. And, yes. and one of the arguments against dropping the timesheets is that, well, you can still use timesheets for informational purposes. It's the budgets that are evil. But I think that even if you're just tracking for informational purposes, it still focuses your team on the wrong thing, which is the inputs rather than what are they delivering to the clients? What is the value they're creating for the clients, which are outputs, which have no direct correlation to the hours anymore, given technology and the power of technology to eliminate those hours. So, we have to move away from the timesheets in order to really think about value creation, put ourselves in the shoes of clients and think about the experience, the client experience. If you're, if you're tracking time, for instance, David, let's go to your story about the whole tax organizer thing. If your team is tracking time, they may look at that time they're putting into sending out these tax organizers and getting them back. And maybe it's very, you know, it's paper tax organizers in a lot of cases, it's a very inefficient process. And if they automate that. Now they're not tracking the time on that anymore. They may feel like they're not doing as much work, but they've created a much better client experience if they can minimize that tax organizer. So that could be like, you know, a way that it improves the firm. I mean, you could survey, right? Where you just ask the clients, did you get your return on time? Yeah. Or in a timely matter and you just measure that. Yeah. Measure, measure client satisfaction, measure the time it takes to turn around a return, measure response times, so how long does it take when a client sends an email for your team to get back to them or return a phone call? Most firms don't track this at all. And I would say that's the biggest cause of client dissatisfaction. So why, why don't we try tracking that instead? You could track the number of communication points with a client. How many emails did they send you every week? You can get a pretty good idea if your firm is operating an email which are the biggest clients, right? The more emails you get, probably, the more work it's going to be, the more effort. 
you don't need to track your time to to figure that out. Okay, so let's talk about the news. A listener actually sent me the story. Actually, I think I met somebody else might have tagged me. I think I've seen it twice now about how Warren Buffett invested $1 billion into crypto. And this is after years ago where Warren Buffett said it was rat poison. He wished it was never invented, <laughs> right? And, and part of this headline also talks about how Berkshire revealed they've dropped over $3 billion of its shares inside that they have of MasterCard and Visa. So they, so they shifted basically... $3 billion back prior to a cash position and put a $1 billion investment in a company called Nubank. And the, it's funny because this, this article is on Yahoo, so it's a little bit more of a press release per se, but it says, specifically his company, Berkshire Hathaway, has bought $1 billion worth of stock in a digital bank that focuses on crypto. Oh, and that's the clickbait headline then. It's totally a clickbait headline. So you yeah. go out to Nubank's website, so they're a bank in Brazil, right, and kind of the largest bank of its kind in Latin America. It's really a bank. It's like checking account, savings account, mortgages, loans. Yeah. And then they have an investment branch. And you go to the investment branch and you can buy stocks and mutual funds and EFTs and all of these things, index funds. There's nothing in crypto. Like literally there's nothing. <laughs> now, my understanding from the research I did is you actually in your investment account, you can choose to possibly buy crypto through the app, but it is not their focus. Right. And he actually already invested before they went public $500 million. And, you know, the way he invests, right, he buys value. Yeah. So yeah. obviously he felt his, the value of Visa MasterCard were overrated. So those, and now he's like at new bank, but they're not a crypto game. Like this is this they're, argument, they're, right? They're a fintech and they do a little bit of crypto, but it's not a crypto move for Warren Buffett is I, what you're I saying. Mean, because it doesn't even say the word crypto on their website as things you can even invest in, yeah. tells me where the priority is. Yeah. It's such a low priority. Well, you know, it's it's clickbait that's being pumped to drive up the market, yeah. right? If, if Warren, now that now all the crypto hype people can say, Warren Buffett invested a billion dollars in crypto, you should too. Don't exactly. be, don't miss out, don't miss out on the next big thing. So you, you, could, you could get rich. So the hype continues, right? So yeah. this is on blockworks.co. Oh, that that site is garbage, by the way. <laughs> not not according to me. That's according to Matt Foreman on Twitter. They posted some article about the IRS and cryptocurrency and something about do miners owe tax on their their mining stake that they get? You know, they get that yeah. money for mining, and it was like completely wrong. <laughs> and they well, just got called out on tax Twitter. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Canopy. Accounting practice management software should bring together all your firm's mission-critical functions in one place. Client management, document management, workflow, time and billing, and payments to keep your team organized. Canopy knows that not all firms are on the same practice management journey or timeline, so Canopy lets you build your practice management platform as you need it. You start with client management as your foundation, then you choose the modules that your firm needs. And since nobody likes paying for modules they don't use, they offer modular pricing as well. Canopy integrates with QuickBooks Online, Xero, FreshBooks, CRMs, form builders, spreadsheets, calendars, email, and Zapier. They have a mobile app, centralized file management, fillable PDFs, a client portal, task management, and the list goes on and on. Via their integration with the IRS, you can easily retrieve all your clients' transcripts, notices, and child tax care credit payments without leaving Canopy. To try Canopy free for 30 days, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash canopy. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-A-N-O-P-Y. 
Well, they have another article. This is written by Casey Wagner, and it's about how Colorado plans to accept tax payments in crypto. Really? And so, great. Here we go. It's the headline. Yeah. But if you read it, the article, and so this actually tells me it's bad for crypto in theory because basically they're going to, Colorado is going to partner with a crypto company to immediately accept and convert to cryptocurrencies. To quote, this is... So, so they're not accepting crypto. They're just, they're letting you pay in crypto, but they're going to convert it immediately yes, into so dollars. Yes. Colorado governor, yeah. Jared Polis, he said, our budget is still in dollars. Our expenditures are still in dollars. And of course... Yeah. We don't want to take the speculative risk of holding crypto. We'll be having a transactional layer here. The Democrat said it will be entering our system as dollars. Well, this is like Eric Adams, mayor of New York, who said, I'm going to take my paycheck in crypto. And then it turned out that they couldn't because of the law. So all he did was like convert it in Coinbase. And he said, I I took it in crypto. No, he didn't. (laughs) Yeah. So so, essentially what they're doing is if people have crypto and they owe taxes, they're basically creating a means to get the money as fast as possible. Yeah, it's just a payment like, method, right? Like it's why just wait like, for that person to yeah. sell their crypto and then send you the cash? They're, yeah. they're taking out, they're providing better service in a way, right? And they're going to yeah. try to get yeah. the cash faster. It's, but the it's article- It's just like offering credit card payments or something. That's all. But it, but it makes it seem like, oh, this is why you know, crypto is legit. But really, this is going to force crypto to be sold, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Well, that, actually, that's a funny point because if- if crypto delivers on the promise of becoming a real payments method and people are spending their Bitcoin, I mean, that should increase the value because then more people would demand yeah, it, yeah. right? But but like, it's funny to think about that it could actually reduce the, temporarily reduce the value. And know. then to touch a little bit more on, you know, the crypto hype. Yeah. So this ties into you with Matt Damon and other celebrities and like out of nowhere, all these celebrities are pushing these NFTs. I don't know if you've noticed this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. All the time. And Paris Hilton. Everyone's selling an NFT. Melania Trump sold an uh, NFT. That's a funny story. So it turns out um, this article is in thenationalnews.com, written by Gemma White. Apparently, they're all tied back to one CAA, which is uh, an agency for- Oh, yeah. Creative Artists Agency. Yeah, right? Yeah. I used to- to, When I lived in LA, I was working at a Starbucks- and it was right across from the headquarters. And the people from CAA would come in every day and get their ridiculous coffee drinks. And I made those. <laughs> <laughs> you could have sold them some uh, NFTs. So they're all they're, they're all part of that agency uh-huh. who's a major investor in the NFT marketplace OpenSea. And they recently signed a deal to represent the NFT collector OXB1 who owns NFTs from Board, Ape Yacht, Club, and World of Women. Uh, World of Women is the one Witherspoon's pushing. The Bored Ape is the one that Paris Hilton is pushing. And they're all tied. So Witherspoon's is married to Jim Toth, who is one of CAA's most powerful agents. <laughs> so that it's all tied to the same the same firm, essentially, right? They're they're being used to to shell this, uh, slip this on people, right? But there is one celebrity. This could be your new hero. There's one okay. celebrity actor. He's emerged as a critical opponent. The OC actor Ben McKenzie, who recently played, played James Gordon in Gotham. Are you familiar with who this is? I remember watching the OC in college. Who who did he play? I don't know. James Gordon in <laughs> Gotham. Um, James Gordon in Gotham. Okay. Oh, like the TV show. I haven't seen the TV okay. series. He said, quote unquote, I'm just a former team idol standing here 
parentheses alone, asking people to consider the downside risk and the possibility of fraud, he tweeted. I hope I am wrong, but pretty sure we'll find out soon enough. Good luck, folks. Don't take financial advice from celebs, including me. That's great. So what a he hero. must have got pitched on this. Yeah. And was like, oh, this isn't the right fit. So at least we're going to, this is going to come crumbling down. So, but he's, he's putting a stand. He's saying, you know, Hey, this could be a possibility of fraud. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some diversity numbers in the profession. I mentioned this and then, then we'll get to the, the app. We got app news and we got Trump and we got some other stuff, but I just want to point this out because this is, this is very frustrating to me. So Bloomberg tax did a diversity and inclusion survey for 2021. It's an update to their original 2017 survey. So we haven't had this for four years. They got 169 respondents from accounting firms that had more than 100 employees and 10 million in annual revenue. And then 165 respondents from corporations with over half a billion in annual revenue. So this is big accounting firms and big corporations. The survey concluded that despite an increased awareness of diversity inclusion practices, there still hasn't been significant progress made in the tax industry, especially at the management level, which remains mostly white and male-centric, which keeps in line with how the profession views itself. So no progress. Now, interestingly, you might ask, what do accounting firms and corporate tax departments cite as the biggest challenge in diversity? They say the limited talent pipeline. So it's that old excuse that there aren't enough diverse students becoming accountants. So we don't we don't have anyone to we don't have the pool to to create diversity. And I just I hate that excuse because it's it's an excuse to then push everything forward five to ten years because you say, okay, we're gonna go out to the schools and we're gonna increase diversity, and then we'll have a divert more diverse pipeline. But like it's obviously not working because we've been doing that for how long? And every year I see some sort of new diversity and inclusion thing. But but this right? is a, this is a supply and demand thing, right? I think it's very easily could be fixed very quickly. What do you think would fix if it? If you're a person of a di- diverse background, all the firms, you think about all the big firms, all the big corporations, they want to get their diversity numbers up. They want their numbers higher. Well, they but say they do. They but say the supply they want their numbers is low. higher. The supply is low. So they're going to have to pay, if you're from a diverse background, pay you more. Oh, but they're not willing to do that. And you Are should you demand David? more. If you're from a diverse background, you should demand more because then if the wages yeah. for people with diverse backgrounds are higher, guess what the bottom of the funnel is going to do? It's going to get a flood of people chasing that money. Yeah. But see, that's the thing. They're not willing to do that. So they don't really want to fix it. Yeah. Well, they're not willing to fix the hours, the job, right? I think that a lot of this is due to the, due to the fact that we have a traditional pathway that is not very appealing anymore. So it's not, it's not appealing to anyone, but much less people from diverse backgrounds. So you got to fix that, make the job better. You know, it's interesting. Corporate tax departments actually don't have a problem with manager level roles for women. Women comprise roughly 50% of manager-level roles in corporate tax departments, but it's definitely not that way in public accounting. I've said this before, that if you only focus on the top of the pipeline and trying to get more people into the top of the pipeline, it doesn't matter if your pipeline has leaks all through it. That's the problem we have as a profession, is we've got a leaky pipeline, and all these people are churning out. So we've got to, talk, we've got to focus on retention. The IMA did a study something like 50% of people from diverse backgrounds leave the profession because of a a feeling of lack of inclusion. That's the problem we have. It's not filling the pipeline at the top. It's that we're losing these people. So I I really wish we would stop using this excuse. 
Because then if you lose them, it encourages less people to try on the bottom. Right. People have to have role models to look up to. And if you don't have any of those role models, then you're not going to be like, it's a catch 22, right? It's a chicken and egg problem. And I'm I'm a real believer in supply side economics, believe it or not, David. (laughs) And, And I really believe that you have to create the supply before you can create the demand. So, unless you have diverse people in these manager roles, you're not going to get a supply of diverse students because they're not going to see a future for themselves. It's the same way you can't, people can't demand a product that doesn't exist yet. Somebody's got to go make it. And, you know, this is just us not thinking like business people. We got to think like a business if we want to fix this problem. So, that's enough on that. David, I'll let you pick for it next. I mean, we have the, I mean, we can continue on numbers, right? Obviously, the accountant shortage financial risk. I think that almost starts transitioning to the Trump stuff maybe. And then the numbers about the SEC and PCAOB for mm-hmm. 2021 enforcement. So let's talk about then the great resignation and the the financial statement reporting risk. There was an article in The Verge. Did we talk about this article? I don't no, think we, we did not. We did not. I, I, think it, it, okay. I think I saw it pop up right after we recorded last week. Okay. So, you know, like you've said in the past that whenever accounting gets into the headlines, it's never a good thing. Well, it certainly wasn't with the Trump, you know, thing. And then also with this article in TheVerge.com, it's called Overtaxed, Busy Season is Here, But Some Public Accountants Aren't. So the great resignation in accounting is getting so big that it's getting mainstream attention from, you know, non-accounting publications. And the first thing in this article is the Reddit, the subreddit accounting, r slash accounting, which I love to browse for stories about timesheets and also just stories about overwork and partners behaving badly, all that stuff, right? It's it's the venting spot for everybody who's dissatisfied with life in the big four and other accounting firms, but mostly the big four, right? That's where you go to blow off steam. Used to be going concern, now it's Reddit. It's worth a read. It's kind of funny because like this article basically reposts a bunch of memes from, from Reddit. Like for an example, there's a meme here that says, uh, it's a picture of the Joker wearing his clown costume. The caption is, me getting ready for work when there's a chick selling her farts in jars for 50K a week. You remember that OnlyFans yeah, yeah. story? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the point is that the rate resignation is increasing the resignations that are happening. I mean, we're, we're losing a lot of accountants right now. It goes to the whole diversity and inclusion thing, right? Like, we're just, we, we are hemorrhaging talent. Yeah. The Bloomberg Tax has an article, Accountant Shortage, Resignations Fuel Financial Reporting Risk. And I think the, this really summarizes like how bad it is. Yeah. Tell me how bad it is. Yeah, that people now are leaving and staff are leaving in the middle of financial reporting season, which at one time people wouldn't do. It just was kind of taboo, but people just don't care. They're just like, I'm out. Yep. I've had enough. I'm not doing it again. Not another year of this. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a quote here from some folks about the, the risks. So, Bruce Pounder, executive director of Gap Lab, an advisory firm, said, quote, if you choose to file on time, there is absolutely going to be an elevated risk that your financial statements will be materially misstated. That's not good for anybody. So, we're talking about financial statement reporting risk. The great resignation isn't just a practice management problem anymore. It's, it's an actual like, this could create risks for financial markets. So, now there's a, there's a real reason to solve this problem. And I, I just don't see any of our leaders like solving it in a meaningful way. Like, well, KPMG just is going to uh, raise wages. There's no yeah, ad- addressing the actual part of the job people hate. They're just going to raise the wages. Right, but not addressing it. the fact that it's not flexible and it's too many hours. 
And I think that's the biggest thing you got to do. Like, I don't think giving them more money is going to help. You got to give them more flexibility and reduce the, the yeah, reduce more the money, insane hours. I, six more months. Yeah. But. And it, it's, it's in the big scheme of things. I looked at the number. It's not a lot of money. Like when given inflation and everything like that, it's like, <laughs> it's not a lot. Even if you give everyone a 10% raise, inflation was 7%. Like that doesn't, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, okay, 3% over inflation. Great. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. So I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe, maybe it'll take some sort of massive failure <laughs> for this to get fixed. We must think, but there's massive failures all the time. That's true. That's and nobody, make it, and nobody gets held accountable for that. Well, the good thing is, is maybe there's lack of accountants, you know, because of this overwork, poor jobs are done, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, it's not a big deal because the SEC and the PCAOB, they don't do anything. And then if they do, it, it doesn't it doesn't cost anything. Oh, right. There's no teeth to any of these right. penalties. So, so the-, so the uh, We've talked about that. Cornerstone Research uh, released a report on Wednesday reporting the total, the total number of accounting and auditing enforcement actions by both the SEC and PCAOB. Do you know what the total is? Mind you, there's like I mean, 5,000 public companies and- in, in Yeah. I'm, I'm going to guess it's like in the dozens? 52. <laughs> Amazing. Totaling uh, about $159 million in total monetary settlements. So these are okay. two massive government or- organizations that yeah. probably have budgets Bigger of billions than that. of dollars. Yeah. And that's it. Uh, the the median- a, Wait, that number, you, you, you kind of said it quick, but I want to yeah. sit on that for a second. $159 million in penalties in one year. That's like a rounding error. They don't even call them penalties, settlements. Settlements, yeah. And the median settlement for SEC enforcements was only 200,000, which basically means half of all the accounting and auditing cases were settled for underneath $200,000. Amazing. And then the uh, the PCAOB, they disclosed they've done 18 audit-related enforcement actions last year, which is an increase of 38% from the 13 they did in 2020. 18 last year? Up from 13. And how many accounting firms are there? In in total, the settlements only amounted to uh, 1.1 million. 1.1 million. That's it? Yeah. Ama- and, and we have public accounting firms that are making hundreds of millions or billions of and many, dollars. Ca- many times it's just a restatement. Oh, we, we right. got them to restate or forced a restatement. You know, like, they, like they're making all the SPAC people do. So yeah. imagine if we didn't have the SPACs. These guys would have done nothing. Yeah. That's sad. It's really sad. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Cinder. With direct connections to Amazon, Shopify, eBay, Stripe, Square, and 20 of the most popular online and e-commerce platforms, Cinder automatically categorizes and accurately posts transactions into the accounting system, allowing you to easily prepare your clients' data and organize their consolidated P&L regardless of the number of platforms they may be selling on. Cinder allows you to use the general ledger of your choice, QuickBooks, Xero, or even Cinder's own GL, which is designed specifically for e-commerce businesses and contains everything you need out of the box to make tax season a breeze. Cinder can sync all the necessary details like inventory items, tax, shipping, discounts, classes, and locations. It even correctly handles the processor fees. With tools like a duplicate detector and rollback functions, you can rest assured your client's books will never get messed up because you can undo and restore any synced data with literally one click. If you need support from Cinder, they offer free help using your favorite means of communication, be it chat, email, or phone. To try out Cinder for free, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Cinder. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-Y-N-D-E-R. Cinder, easy accounting for e-commerce businesses. 
also just kind of like as an industry hole, and I don't want to be like big cloud of rain. All right, so we have the IRS that's completely falling apart. We got the SEC and PCAOB who are basically useless. Then we have the accountant shortage. Like, are we burning on all ends here in this industry? Like, like, is something, are we going to completely collapse? Well, and the risk here is, actually, the risk is not collapse. It's just total irrelevance that nobody cares. Just wild, it'll turn to wild west. Yeah, People well, can do whatever they want. And here's the impact. The impact is that because the work that we do, because we don't hold ourselves to a high standard as a profession, we let the bad actors get away with a lot because we don't hold ourselves accountable. The value that we create for the public markets is less and less every year. Accounting only has value if it can be trusted. And so by not doing this, we, we reduce the value of, of audits and financial statements. And then people, the market isn't willing to pay for that. So that's, if you ask me, that's why audit fees, accounting fees for these traditional services have stagnated. And that's why pay has stagnated too. Because the, the firms operate on a very simple model where it's it's just a you're leveraging people and you're marking up their you're marking up their salaries to get to your price right and if if you can't if the value of the audit for instance is not keeping up with inflation you're not going to be able to provide cost of living raises to your staff if you want to have the same margins so it's a very big picture problem and, and you're right it is about the, what value is this bringing do people even care Right, and this kind of pie charts transitioning into Trump, and all yeah. like like the one I saw in one of the articles is the Trump Tower has fifty eight floors, and paperwork claimed it had sixty eight. Like, like this is not even like this is very like verifiable information, yeah. right? Like, well, okay, so I I really do think that this all ties in. So this is a great case study, and I'm more interested in talking about this as a case study for how we hold ourselves out as a profession versus getting into the, is Trump a bad guy or not? We don't have to talk about that. People can make their own decision on that, right? The question is like, what happened here? What did the firm do? Why did they resign after 10 years of doing these financial statements? What were even these financial statements? What is the impact on Trump? And, and what, what were they doing, right? Like, let's dig into actually what they were doing, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there in the press, in the public, about what even this was. And it's not like this was like, they just woke up yesterday, and they're like, oh, we got to get out of this after a decade. Like, they always put disclaimers on the front of all these things, right? And uh, there's one about how much this, uh, Trump Tower is worth and his golf courses are worth, but they had a two-page disclaimer, right? Warning, have not audited or reviewed the accompanying financial statement can't vouch for the accuracy of the numbers which come from Trump right so so this they've been publishing this on all these documents the whole time and this goes back to I don't want to like tie to my tax organizer but it's kind of that same thing right <laughs> they probably sent him a tax organizer and said how much are your assets and you just put numbers in right so who is Mazars Wikipedia tells us that they are a global audit accounting and consulting group employing more than 42,000 professionals in more than 90 countries through member firms. Are they like top 10? Are they? That I don't know. Their top head offices. for sure, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Heck yeah. Head offices in France. And they've got this alliance called Praxity. Worldwide turnover for the integrated partnership for the fiscal year ending August 2014 was over, just over a billion euros. They're a big firm. Okay, big global firm. 
They're number 28. So what happened? Let's just review the facts. So on Valentine's Day, which I just love, it's like, was this on purpose? Did the Attorney General, Letitia James, deliberately make the filing on Valentine's Day? Because it's the headline is, you know, on Valentine's Day, Trump's accountants break up with him. A court filing became public that included a letter from Mazers resigning as the accountants for the Trump organization. And the letter is is fascinating because it doesn't just say what the headlines say, which is you can't trust these financial statements anymore, right? Well, that's that's kind of how it got simplified in the press, that they're disclaiming these 10 years of statements, but that they're not actually doing that. So they said, we write to advise that the statements of financial condition for Donald J. Trump for the years ending June 30th, 2011 to June 30th, 2020 should no longer be relied upon and you should inform any recipients thereof who are currently relying upon one or more of those documents that those documents should not be relied upon. We have come to this conclusion based, in part, upon the filings made by the New York Attorney General on January 18th, 2022, our own investigation, and information received from internal and external sources. While we have not concluded that the various financial statements as a whole contain material discrepancies, Based upon the totality of the circumstances, we believe our advice to you to no longer rely upon those financial statements is appropriate. So, like, what are they even saying there? They're saying that they haven't concluded that the financial statements are wrong in a material way, but you can't rely on them. You still can't rely on them. And I find that a fascinating distinction because it's it's one that the public... I mean, I have trouble understanding. How is that possible? So, so the just, end, of, you know. <laughs> so there's an example here. They talked about he, he got a loan from Capital One, right? And this is going to tie back into your, if people aren't finding value in accounting firms, why would they pay for it? So he tried to get a loan from Capital One. He claimed that the valuation of the skyscraper was $500 million. But the bank went and did their own analysis and determined it was only worth 257 million and decided not to restructure the debt. So if people are going to have to do their own due diligence, what's the point of a firm? Well, and and that gets to what this engagement actually was. Like what were these financial statements? Because another common misconception is that these were audited financial statements because most people assume that when a firm issues financial statements that they're audited, but they're not. These 100% not. agree. Like that is the I would say man on the street 200 out of 201 people are going to agree. Yeah. Well, and it makes intuitive sense, right? Like if this is coming from an accounting firm and it has their logo on it. Well, it's because the firms that... have trained us this, you know, when the Academy Awards are on, they got the briefcase with the handcuffs on it. Right. Like you're like, oh, there's there, there's integrity here. Yeah. We, we are the trusted advisors. So when something comes with our logo on it, it means something. That's what we have branded the CPA profession as. So. The thing is that these were not audited financial statements. They were performed under what's known as a compilation engagement. This is something I've never really understood. Like that this is a thing. <laughs> okay. So So this is really you said compilation engagement. Compilation. So yes. I feel like you're gonna explain to me what this is. I just want to make sure I'm getting that. I can. And and I want to get to what a compilation is, but let's just say for now that these are not audited financial statements. And as we have said before on the show, they had disclaimers all over the place. I mean, fine print, you got to read down in the footnotes, but it says we did not 
I don't know exactly what the language is, but it's basically saying we didn't we didn't investigate these numbers. These come from the Trump organization. So that's an important thing that has been missed in the press. We'll get back to that. Now, I want to point out that Mazers is still defending the work that they did. So even though they're saying you can no longer rely on these 10 years of financial statements, they are defending that they perform their work in accordance with professional standards. And they said a subsequent review of those work papers confirms this. So they're doubling down and saying, we did these compilations in accordance with professional standards. Well, well, not only are they doubling down, the Trump Organization spokesperson said, Mazar's work was performed in accordance with and all applicable accounting standards and principles. Yeah, right. Which they, which Mazar said themselves. Now, the Trump Organization lied in that statement. Here's the exact statement from Trump. Quote, while we are disappointed that Mazars has chosen to part ways, their letter confirms that after conducting a subsequent review of all prior statements of financial condition, Mazars' work was performed in accordance with all applicable accounting standards and principles, and that such statements of financial condition do not contain any material discrepancies. This confirmation effectively renders the investigations by the DA and AG moot. Okay, but that's not what Mazars said. What Mazars said in their letter is that they didn't see any evidence of material discrepancies in specific financial statements. Not that there aren't any, but this is such a distinction. This is so subtle that of course it gets missed by the public. I mean, I'm, I'm having trouble keeping it straight here right now. And I've spent hours reading about this. So there's, there's definitely problems with this whole engagement. We'll talk about that. I also want to hit on a few other things in here that are interesting. So. My question is, why now? And I think that's the big question that everyone is asking after 10 years of working for Trump, why now throw your client under the bus or bail on the client? Yeah, why not a year ago, two years ago? Why, why not on January 6th? Why not next right? year? Like, right, yeah. <laughs> right, why now? And in the letter, here's another excerpt from the letter by Mazers to Trump's chief legal officer. This is the one that was released on Valentine's Day. Quote, Due in part to our decision regarding the financial statements, as well as the totality of the circumstances, we have also reached the point as such that there is a non-waivable conflict of interest with the Trump organization. As a result, we are not able to provide any new work product to the Trump organization. So what is that non-waivable conflict of interest? That is not disclosed. And the question is, are they running scared? That Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, is going to implicate Mazers in fraud. That's like my biggest take on this whole thing is if they're going after Trump, is that the goal? Just go after Trump only, stop there? Or like you just said, are they going to go after Mazars next? And this is a lot of this is cover my ass, like separate. We're not tied to him. He's not tied to us. Like, So I doubt that Letitia James gives a crap about Mazars. I think she's going after Trump. This is just my guess, right? But how does she get to him? She turns the accountants against him. Yeah. So is, is Mazur's going to turn state's witness? And that is the conflict of interest. Because once you become a witness for the state, you cannot, you can't do work for that client anymore. So that's, that's my hypothesis. That could be happening. And it could also just be that they've decided that the PR damage of being associated with this investigation is not worth it anymore. But it's very unusual for a firm to do this. It's almost unheard of. For a firm to break up or a firm to turn state witness? 
to abandon a client, client in this way because it's it, think about it if you're a client of them are you going to think they're going to st- stand by you when you get in trouble no it's a huge this is a this or, is a bad thing for, for the firm. all firms probably this is going to be very scary precedents so like can i trust like people are going to trust their firm less and give less information to their firm if they if they don't feel like the firm is going to be there for them when things go wrong so here's a quote from barbara mcquaid a former federal prosecutor who is with the University of Michigan Law School. She said, quote, accounting firms don't make the decision to quit their clients lightly. They are distancing themselves from the Trump organization because they fear that wrongdoing is likely to be exposed. This effort to distance themselves could be an effort at self-preservation. And it depends on whether Mazers knew the information it was getting from the Trump organization was false or whether it was misled too. So now we can talk about what this was. All right, so th- and this let's is let's pause for a second there though. Can yeah. we talk about this like what was provided to them and whether or not they were misled? Yeah, so that's exactly what I want to talk about. I'm like they're they're a big they're a top 30 accounting firm. Don't they have staff and real estate investors and people that could be like yeah, that doesn't seem like that's the right valuation. Well, this is the this is the fun bit. Where, are they, they that bad of a firm? Like no, they, they couldn't but, tell no. that oh, he's misstating that probably. That doesn't feel like Where's the uh, the smell test? So I can totally see why you would. I can totally see why you would think that, and and that's a reasonable response from the public, who don't understand the difference between audited financial statements and a compilation. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by A2X. Since 2014, A2X has helped thousands of online merchants and their advisors save inordinate amounts of time reconciling the revenue for their online stores. A2X posts tidy summaries of sales, returns, and fees from Shopify and Amazon directly into QuickBooks or Xero that exactly match the deposits that appear in the bank account, allowing you to accurately reconcile in just one click, giving you the confidence of knowing that your client's e-commerce financials are accurate. Cloud Accounting Podcast listener and e-commerce expert Scott Scharf said A2X is the gold standard in e-commerce accounting. ATEX has a partner program for accountants and bookkeepers that includes one-on-one onboarding, training for you and your team, and exclusive marketing opportunities. To learn more about using ATEX and get 50% off your subscription for three months by using code CAP50, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash A2X. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash A, the number two, X. So this was a compilation engagement. And what that means in plain speak, and it kind of seems ridiculous as I say this, is your client sends you information, maybe an Excel sheet, something like that. Tax and you, Yeah. You, the accounting firm, then take what they send you and you put it into the proper format. So, you know, income statements, balance sheets, they have a certain standard format that you are required to use. They don't check the numbers. They just type it up. And then they put it on their letterhead and issue these financial statements back to the client. And they put disclaimers that say, we have not audited these. In the case of Mazers, they, in many years- All right, so, so, so even, I'm going to get a loan and I don't have my shit together, but the bank's like, hey, we need a balance sheet and profit loss statement. Yeah. I could just give some numbers over to my firm, some accounting firm, and they'd be like, all right, yeah, we'll organize this into a balance sheet and profit and loss, all these numbers you got. And then we'll just issue a little letter that this is not audited. And then I take that to the bank and get my loan. 
Yeah, and if if the bank is smart, they would say, well, we need audited financial now, statements, Is this right? common? Does this happen a lot? Or is this something that they're kind of doing for Trump? Or is this like kind of common? I could just do this so, with any firm. So I don't know how often and compilations are done. I just know that when I talk to firm owners, most of the leading small firms that are growing, like the cloud accounting firms that listen to our show, they don't do compilations because <laughs> it's like they're not actually useful. They don't, you know, the the value there is like if they're not audited, what's the point? Like, well, not only that, I, I feel like so, a lot of smaller, newer firms, like their mindset now is unless I control the bookkeeping, the full end to end, I don't right. want to be doing the audits or the tax stuff. Why would you want to put your name, your logo, your firm reputation on something that you haven't looked into? I don't understand compilations. I don't understand why we do them. I mean, I think it it's, made it's sense. It's like a licensing deal. They're just buying the logo in the same way people buy the Trump logo. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, so (laughs) that's a good point. You're just buying the logo is what you're doing. You're buying the accounting firm's logo when you get a compilation. So I I could see why these were a reasonable thing to do, you know, 50 years ago when people didn't have typewriters (laughs) or a hundred years ago when literally you would be providing your accountant like handwritten financials and then they would go and type them up and print them for you. But anyone can make financial statements now with QuickBooks. So why are firms still doing this? So this was a compilation and there's no assurance provided. You're, you're basically just slapping your logo on some numbers that the client provided to you. And going concern went out and I got to give them credit for doing a lot of this research. They, they went out and asked accounting professors, like, what is Mazer's liability? What, what, you know, what, what could they potentially get in trouble for? Before you go, go down that path, like, what do you think they charge for this as a service? Oh, I'm sure they're making bundles of money doing it. I, I don't know. Because but... I actually didn't see in any of these articles, over a decade, they, the Trump organization paid Mazar's this much money. Like, I didn't see anything anywhere yeah. about that. I'm curious if there's, like, just numbers. Okay, so I just did a Google search. Guide to Financial Statement Services from GRACPA. This is a highlighted snippet on Google. It said, compiled financial statements generally range in cost from 800 to 3,500 based on the size and complexity of your company and can take one to two weeks to complete. I have so, no so idea. So, you value price that for Trump. You, maybe they're charging 350000 Tens of thousands, right? Yeah. yeah, who knows? Hundreds of thousands, who knows? So, I think a lot of firms are just not doing them because it's like, well, why would we go to, why would we put our name on something that we're not checking and like, what's the value? But, but here's the thing. So, the question is, like, why now, if these are not audited financial statements, why is Mazers now disclaiming them? Well, it's because under the standards, the Statements on Standards for Accounting and Review Services, SSARS, which are issued by the AICPA and govern these types of engagements, you don't have to do assurance. But if in the course of the compilation agreement, if the accountant becomes aware that the accounting policies issued by management or the records, documents, explanations, or other information, including significant judgments provided by management, are incomplete, inaccurate, or otherwise unsatisfactory, then the accountant should request additional or corrected information, and failing that, then the accountant should withdraw from the engagement. So, to summarize, you don't have to verify the information, but if while you are doing the compilations, you discover something that makes you doubt the data, then you have to resign if you can't clear it up. So think about this. If I'm doing compilations for Trump, I have every incentive, because I'm getting paid lots of money to do this, to just ignore anything that I see that could potentially create doubt in my mind. Okay, so so way back in 2019, with the, the Trump Tower, 
The 68 yeah. stories versus 58 yeah. stories, right? It truly is 58. So if they would have acknowledged like, oh, we found out it has 58, they would have had to end the engagement then. I mean- is that, I'm trying to make sure I'm understanding what you're basically yeah. saying, Aaron. At the point, if you're the partner signing off on these compilations, right? At the point that you have doubt about the numbers, that you're supposed to ask for information. And if you don't get the information to satisfy your question in your mind, then you need to resign and disclaim those all those financial statements that you issued. So they basically, because Trump's paying the bills, the money's coming in, he's paying your invoices that your firm's sending him. You're like, I, I don't want to ever go and count. I don't even want to look up at the Trump Tower because I don't want to think maybe it has less floors than what I just reported on. Yeah, yeah you, you want to cover your eyes, cover your ears, hear no evil, see no evil, right? As long as you aren't aware of it, you don't have to stop. So do you think this is going to be like a big takedown? Like partners are going to be in big trouble? Like, oh, like- yeah. Well, David, we just we just came to this story off of one about how penalties in our profession are meaningless. Oh, okay. Yes. Are they going to get a $70,000 fine and, and yeah, they issue the- an apology and, and go through a, a webinar on ethics Yeah, maybe the partner gets their hand slapped or something like that, right? Like, I mean, that's just my guess as to what's going to happen given how it normally happens. But- there was something else I wanted to mention here. Yeah, here's an interesting comment from Going Concern. This is from Big Four Veteran, who I have, this person, anonymous account, has been commenting on Going Concern forever. And this is a really good comment. So back to the context of this comment, Going Concern went and asked accounting professors what they think Mazer's liability might be and what happened. And basically the accounting professors said, well, because it's a compilation agreement, they didn't provide assurance unless somebody provides evidence that these guys knew, that Mazers knew that this information was false, they had to have the knowledge of it, right? They're not going to be guilty of anything because it's only if they knew that this was false that they have to then go out and... and that's a hard bar to satisfy, right? That's a lot of evidence. You need really good evidence to show that they they knowingly issued these compilations with information that cast out on them, Right. But I want to say this, so, so that's what all the professors are saying, which is true, right? Legally, the firm is probably covered, is my guess. But Big Four Veterans said, interesting comments by all the accounting professors, but they all seem to be focusing on the difference between audited financial statements and a compilation report and the legal implications of each. What doesn't seem to be addressed in this discussion is the accountant's ethical and professional standards relating to the preparation of financial information for a client where you know or reasonably suspect that the information will be used to commit fraud. Personally, I always try to see the good in people and give them the benefit of the doubt, but I wasn't born yesterday. I have a hard time believing that Mazers did business with Trump for over 10 years and didn't even have a whiff that Trump applying for loans or preparing tax returns using vastly different estimates of the fair value of his various properties, depending on what valuation was most beneficial to Trump in each circumstance. One other important fact that is omitted by almost all the professors is that Mazers also prepared Trump's tax returns, in addition to preparing the compilation reports. In other words, Mazers knew a lot about Donald Trump's financial condition and performance. It's sort of hard for really smart people to play dumb for 10 years. I'm not buying it. So so, so here's my question, going back to this, like, become a state's witness, witness, right? And flipping, right? You And just let's put on our, like, law and order hat, right? Uh-huh. The way that game is, like, okay, Blake, you're busted, and you got to go squeal. It's kind of the gist of it. Now, just ignoring things and turning a blind eye, is that enough to twist Mazar's arm to get them to flip to state's witness? Or do you think the investigation is possibly discovered 
some conspiratorial type actions on Mazar's part where they are they absolutely have to flip now. Yeah, it could be both, right? I mean, so basically, if Letitia James has evidence that Mazars knew that this stuff was false and put out these compilations anyway, that could get in big trouble. That's enough, you're thinking. That's about. enough. Yeah. But, you know, accountants, we're good at covering our butts. We're good at CYA. So I, I'm not sure if this is just like preempted. Like maybe they're just trying to get off of her radar. They think that Everybody like, will by, forget. Two weeks from, yeah, the news cycle yeah. changes something else and nobody will remember Mazars ever again. <laughs> it's like, you know, when, when there's two defendants in a trial and one of them like decides, you know what? I want my own trial. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be associated with this, this person, right? That's, that's what this kind of makes me think. I don't know, maybe. So, so I want to talk about like my take, which is a little bit different and, and goes a little broader, right? So, so I think compilations are garbage. And we should not be doing them as a profession. Because if you think about it, what are we doing when we do a compilation? Because we're, we're not doing any assurance, we're slapping our logos on these things. We're just selling our brand. And people can take that and do bad things with it. And we, we shouldn't be tarnishing our reputation this way. It's not necessary to do compilations anymore. You can tell your client, just you know, plug in the numbers into accounting system and print out financial statements if you want. Like, I'm not going to do that for you. Or go get an Excel template or something, right? I don't see the value in compilations. And if we do have them, then there should be some higher standard. And I think that the reason that we have this situation where we have a product like compilations that we offer as CPAs is because we want to have it both ways. We want to be able to make money, but we don't want to take on any risk. And the problem is when we do that, we diminish the value of the output and we create confusion for the public. It damages our brand. The fact that we have an accounting firm and what, what does the public see? They don't see compilation and audit financial statement. They don't see any of that stuff. What they see is an accounting firm that after 10 years is finally admitting that this stuff was false and they're only doing it now because, you know, somebody's coming after the client, right? That doesn't look good. And I'm not saying that's what happened, but that's what the public perceives. So, it also goes to the, the duty we have as accountants and the ethical stuff, which seems to have been missed here a lot, right? Yeah, you can satisfy the letter of the law, but is it really being ethical to do that? I was having dinner with my dad last night. My dad is a urban planner, which is a noble profession. And so he has high standards of professional integrity, just like accountants do. And, and I always remember growing up, he was very concerned with ethics and behaving ethically. And he even lost jobs because he refused to be part of bribing officials, government officials and stuff, which happens all the time in real estate. And he lost work because of that, right? By being ethical. So it's important to him. And he made an interesting distinction, like the difference between lawyers and accountants. So lawyers, we expect lawyers to lie for their clients, right? We, we expect lawyers to be the advocate for their clients and do whatever it takes to, to help their client. But accountants aren't lawyers. We have a duty both to the client and to the public. And that's why we have public in the name, certified public accountant, because we have a duty to protect the public. And these types of engagements, and I mean, a lot of the accounting profession, we forget about that duty to the public. And we forget about it because we're getting paid all this money. So it's very easy to get paid to look the other way and pretend you don't see something and not speak up when there's fraud. And I think that's the root cause of these massive failures and the auditor's not catching them. And this is just one example of it, a pretty obvious one, it seems like. I mean, anyone with a brain could go look at 
the reporting on Trump over the few, last few years, and you see he inflates the assets to go get loans, and then he diminishes the assets to go pay taxes. You know, and this is a game we we play in the business world, but he plays this game to the extreme, and I think a lot of people would say over the line, billions of dollars <laughs> over the line. So yeah, it the the incentives in our profession, the way we get paid, the way we get compensated, it it, it incentivizes us to be unethical, right? If you're an unethical CPA, you can make a lot of money by just not looking at what's happening and not standing up. And the problem is when you stand up for something, you lose the business, right? If they'd fired Trump, they would have lost money. And they should have done it probably years ago. So has the AICPA come out with their take or their- Are you kidding me, David? Opinion on this? Like, like <laughs> We're it, never... is, is the, the official like, oh, <laughs> Mazars does not represent the values oh, of no, I, our I, other I, member firms. I, I, I think the odds of that are like nothing, zero, right? It'd be nice. This is the cost of not standing up for ethics in our profession is that bad actors diminish the value of the CPA and this is going to cause damage. This is a big story and people are not going to trust accountants as much after this. Yeah, because this is, is it, a PR story. Like, ultimately, this is a PR story of the CPA brand and big firms yeah. brand. And this is, this is for the, it offsets the PR you do when you carry the briefcase at the award show, yeah. right? Like, exactly. And, the, you know, the CPA is a license, but you use the word brand. I think it's for most accountants who have the CPA, it's a brand more than anything because most of us don't do audit. Most of us don't sign off on compilations or uh, fi financial statements, audited financial statements, right? We, we have our own small practices and we use the CPA. We have it and because it has value in the mind of the marketplace. But every time something like this happens, it diminishes that value. Every time there's a massive financial statement fraud or a company collapses, it causes the public to lose trust in us, in all CPAs. And we just can't be doing it. We can't let this happen. Or we are going to become irrelevant because people will say, I can't trust CPAs anymore and I'm just going to go use non-CPAs. That's why you see so many new firms deciding not to be CPA firms. I would say, David, do you have an idea? Like half of the high growth firms that we know, the firm owners, like how many are CPA firms? It's probably less than half. They may hire CPAs, but they're not a CPA firm. Because of all the headaches involved in that. Yeah. Well, and also they don't want to offer bullshit services like compilations. They can create actual value as opposed to offering this meaningless service, right? I, compilations, are if they don't have any assurance behind them, right? it used to be they had reputation, right? Most firms wouldn't do a compilation for a client that had a bad reputation, but there's nothing to stop you. And so firms do it. And I wouldn't put my name on a compilation unless I was confident that this was an upstanding person, right? And that's the way things used to be, but it's not, it's not always. So yeah, I think we need to tighten things up as CPAs. Otherwise this kind of stuff's going to keep happening. It's just, it's bad. Yeah. And, and the compilations do not create, so they don't create value because they don't mean anything. And then they actually create negative value because of stuff like this happens. So we should get rid of it. That's my, that's my take. And I've gone on for quite a while now. Yeah. And I know we're going to jump in app news, but just before then, I kind of <laughs> had a closing thought that ties all this together. Okay. Like, okay. Like, how come the things of hype and overstating and for using the brand, like, where's the, the Trump coin or the Trump crypto that is like him just shoving down people's throats? Or maybe it does exist, but I, I just assumed well, we would have seen this by now. No, no. Trump has been doing those like little physical Trump coins. The oh, merchandise. Okay. There's actually, you can buy one. It's like um, a silver dollar 
or a gold, gold coin or something with his face on it. But it's harder to overstate the value of that as an asset versus if he went into crypto, then he could really stay. Oh, it would just be fun. Yeah. But Melania Trump sold an NFT of her hat. <laughs> Although I think it was ended, it ended up not selling. Oh no, there's there's a Trump coin. Yeah, it's on coin. Oh, is there a Trump a Trump uh, NFT or no a, a crypto? Well, so David, we're way over time on this now because I've gone on forever. Yeah. And dear listener, if you have stayed with us all this time, thank you so much. I want to let you know that you can get CPE credit for your trouble. You can get an hour of CPE for listening to this episode and many episodes of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, my Earmark Podcast, lots of really great shows like Simply Tax, like Summit CPA Group. All this stuff is available on Earmark CPE, where you can get CPE for listening to podcasts. Go to earmarkcpe.com, download the app, find the Cloud Accounting Podcast, register for the course, and in about five minutes, you can take a quiz. It's a five-question quiz and get your free CPE credit. Check it out. David, if people want to get in touch with you online, where should they? I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. I am at Blake T. Oliver. If you would like to send me a story about timesheets or comment to me about anything we have discussed, I love getting listener mail. Send that to Blake at BlakeOliver.com. You can send me a voicemail, like a voice memo, or you can send me an email and uh, we'll play it. We'll likely play it on the show. I'd love to hear from owners of firms, people that work for big firms, where they think this is going to fall out, this Mazars thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or their take on it. You know, are I'm they issuing if, statements like this? Do they offer this as a service do, to their firm? Yeah. Do you do compilations? And if you do, do you have a higher standard than the one that the ICPA put out there? Would you ever be in this situation with a client? And then I'm curious. Just, just not so much for voicemail, but so this means Trump is currently looking for a new firm. Who's signing up for that? I was thinking it could be Cyber Ninjas. You know, they're, they're, they do, they never did an, I, they never did an IT audit before they, uh, they got the one here in Arizona. So what, who says they couldn't do a financial statement audit? <laughs> it's possible. Somebody should register cyberninjascpas.com or no, they should register cyberninjas.cpa like under the official aicpacpa.com, uh, subdomain. Maybe that would be funny. Actually, this is what's going to happen. I figured it out. So every time Trump gets something goes wrong, he just creates it himself. He created his own Twitter, right? He's mm-hmm. creating his own this, his own this. He's just going to create a firm. Okay, oh, create an accounting firm. He's going to create an accounting uh, firm. There you go. It'll be the, you know, they probably they probably do really well. All right, David. All right. I'll see you here next week, next and we'll week. talk about. We'll get to the app news. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Do you dream of starting a bookkeeping business, but you don't know where to start? Join the Bookkeeping Biz Workshops, a four-day live workshop series hosted by Serena Shoup, CPA. You learn where to start, what it takes, what tech to use, how to build a business, not a job, plus how to get comfortable on discovery calls. The workshops begin February 23rd, so register today at bkworkshops.online. That is bkworkshops.online. As humans, we're programmed from birth to learn watching others. Video has the power to engage, entertain, and educate without ever feeling like work. When you want to become a QuickBooks Online expert in the shortest amount of time, the Royal Wise on-demand web-based learning solutions are the obvious answer. With 40 easy-to-understand QuickBooks classes designed to bolster your confidence and increase your accuracy, Elisa Katz-Pollock's training will take you from beginner to advanced user. 
Pick just the topics you need or save money by subscribing to their entire QuickBooks online library and coaching program for one low monthly price. Listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast can enjoy their first month of silver membership for only $1 using promo code PODCAST. So head over to learn.royalwise.com. That's royal like a king and wise like an owl. Register for a QuickBooks class, become a member for just a dollar, and make learning a hoot. That's learn.royalwise.com. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Blake, and I wanted to let you know about a new show I'm working on with CPA slash comedian Greg Kite and blogger slash former CPA Caleb Newquist. It's called Oh My Fraud, and it's a podcast all about financial crimes. That's right, a true crime podcast for accountants by accountants. Caleb and Greg are going to come together every couple weeks to unpack their favorite frauds and explore the circumstances, psychology, and interpersonal dynamics involved. They also fully indulge in victim-blaming the defrauded widows, orphans, infirm, and feeble-minded, because who can resist? If you fancy yourself a trusted advisor, or prefer your true crime with spreadsheets instead of corpses, listen to this show to learn what to watch out for and to keep your clients, your firm, and even yourself safe. To subscribe, go to ohmyfraud.com or search Oh My Fraud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.